Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to tabletop game design. This episode has been made possible thanks to the excellent folks behind Breakout Con 2017 in Toronto, Ontario. Episode 118, Breaking into Board Game Design. Recorded at BreakoutCon 2017. Presented by Pam Walls, Tim Brown, Eric Lang, Sen Fung Lim, and moderated by Daryl Andrews. All right, well, welcome everyone. Thank you for being here. Uh, my my name is Daryl Andrews. We're going to go across the panel and have each of them uh, introduce themselves. But before we do, I have a special co-moderator. So I'll let Mike just very briefly describe your connection to the game industry. All right. And then I'll say mine and then we'll go across. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Mike Primo and I work at uh, CBC. And I also host a podcast called Nights at the Game Table, which... Uh, focuses on the personal journeys we take through the games we play. So he's roped me into this, and we'll, we'll see what happens. So I myself, uh, I wear a few hats in the game industry. I uh, design freelance. I wear only one right now, moderator. Uh, but uh, I also do development work for IDW Games, and then I co-host uh, the Meeple Syrup Show, so, uh, where designers discuss design. So that's uh, where we're coming from, but just... First question, we're actually going to go with everyone, and then the format will probably just direct the question to one uh, one of our guests, and then if one uh, guest would like to add something, that'll be kind of our format. A couple disclaimers. One, just because it's a topic that blows into a huge overtaking thing, we're probably not going to touch Kickstarter, because that's a whole other that's a whole other session. So feel free to continue those kind of conversations uh, after this session. Uh, and the other thing is, try to be specific with your questions. So questions like, what's your process, or really like vague things, try to be specific. We're going to have a Q&A time uh, at the end. We'll start the conversation with a few questions, kind of a, the big ones, and then we'd like to hear your questions because can you, can you you're here. Your, so. Your ears uh, so before we before we start peppering them with questions, we'll go starting here, work our way across the table, tell us... Uh, who you are, and what's your connection to the game industry? Uh, I'm Eric. I make games. <laughs> Lots of games. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, Tim W.K. Brown. I, I'm a game designer as well. Uh, my name is Sen Fung Lim. I make games. I co-host Meeple Syrup Show with Daryl. And I do development for Wizkids. I'm Pam Walls. Uh, I've been designing games for a while, but just recently that I'm uh, in the process of getting my first game published, so I guess I'm offering the perspective of someone just getting into the industry. Um, I also have founded a Proto-TO, which is a, um, a playtesting convention in Toronto. We have a table in the other room if you want to come check us out later. Um, and I also started um, a Facebook group called Board Game Broads, which is for female uh, board game designers. So, oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Well, this question on here is actually uh, quite an interesting one um, because I think it changes as you progress 
uh, through your career. Um, starting with Eric, because you, you're very well seasoned at this point in your career, and you're still That's loving it. what you do as much yeah, as you did since day one. It's been an interesting week for you, certainly. And uh, congratulations on your latest. <coughs> Maybe just give us some insight as to how the evolution of pitching to a publisher takes place over the course of your career. Does it get any easier once you get a few games behind you? And, and if anybody on, at the table wants to add to that, because uh, some of you are a little earlier in your career, probably would be some, some useful insight on that as well. Uh, th so the question is how it is... How, <coughs> in terms of pitching to publishers now, how has that changed over your career? Uh, yeah, I'm a... I don't actually have a very typical uh, career path. So uh, I started my own game company uh, to publish my own my first game uh, because I just wanted all I cared about was I wanted a game I wanted games out on the market and I didn't care how it got there. So I started my own game company, which is uh, the probably the worst thing I've ever done, but I'm glad I did it. Um, I'm not a business owner; I'm a game designer. But the um, during the course of doing that, I had networked at many shows, and I met with many publishers, and I kept uh, telling, I, I short, shared stories about all the cool new things that our, uh, our company wanted to do, and I was basically pitching, I didn't know it at the time, I was doing it unconsciously, I was pitching our, new, our company's new games, but we ran out of money, so we weren't able to do it, so I ended up with all these pitches that other companies were already interested in, um, but now they were free. So it, I kind of had a, um, I sort of cheated my way in by spending a shit ton of money <laughs> and uh, losing it and uh, starting my own company. Um, the, so by the time I had started actually pitching games to companies, I already had a, I had two successful trading card games under my belt already. So I didn't really have the period of like nobody knows who I am. Um, it was a little difficult in Europe. Uh, like in Europe, people didn't care about trading card games, so I had to reintroduce myself. But I have a German background. I have German parents. I speak the language, so that was already a little bit easier. So, um, I pretty much like the textbook example of privilege in game design. So like, uh, it's always been fairly, uh, it's never been easy, but it's, uh, I've never had any of the barriers, I think, that a, uh, somebody who's completely unknown in the industry would have. Uh, it does get easier over time, of course, because once you have more successes and more, uh, and more of a track record, uh, more publishers, of course, do want to work with, uh, do want to work with me, but I've, in, um, my problem right now, uh, my blessed problems that I don't have enough bandwidth to work on the games that I want to work on. Right. Um, that's really the big problem I've uh, encountered. Uh, I don't think I can speak to the the early part of their career at this point. But the challenge for you might be sorry, sorry, Joe. But the challenge for you might be back at that time was that these games weren't as mainstream as they are now today. So the challenge for a new designer coming in to the game now might be different in terms of trying to get their name known because there's so many designers. For you, it might have been more about because the games were less mainstream. It's true, but I was also, yeah, I was a, uh, I was a medium-sized fish in a much, much smaller pond. So there were, there were very, very, when I started, I think there were five or six people in the entire industry that were making their living <coughs> designing games. Yeah. Now there are, I mean, hundreds. Right. Uh, so, and now the, um, for, every hunt, for every one person designing <coughs> games, there are thousands and thousands of people with prototypes and uh, who go to uh, conventions that want to get published and that are trying to get appointments for publishers. So the competition is extremely stiff at this particular point. Um, so it's, 
uh, I, well, I'd love to be able to talk about that. I don't, I don't know how relevant it is for uh, today's designer. So one, one more person want to speak into the pitching experience? Uh, I could say that uh, the, the easiest, or the, the, the thing that really makes things easier is knowing the person you're pitching to. So if you've met them before, you pitch something else to them, it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> um, so networking, getting to know people, it's a big part of, of, uh, of that. Perfect. Well, we'll move on from there, and I'm sure we'll circle around a few times to this topic. But uh, I'll actually direct this one to Sam. Um, and then if one other <coughs> designer on the panel would like to add to it, um, how do you know when a game is finished? Oh, that's a great question. I think I wrote that one. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody needs to edit that. Yeah, just edit that out. Uh, no, um, so my background's in psychology, so that's what I do. I actually watch people play the game. And what I'm looking for and listening for isn't really the math of it all, the balance of it all. I'm looking to see the response of people and how they engage with the game, how they react to the puzzles, the problems that we set up for them in the game system. And then what I'm really hoping for is the talk after, the debrief that they're talking about their turn and how they would have done something different or how they want to play the game or how they would not change anything but just change their in-game behavior to maximize their score or do something fun or do something creative. And so if they're talking about, you know, I, that time when I played that card and I hit you for 20, 20 points, I should have actually, oh, man, that was great. That's the kind of thing I'm listening for. That's when I know a game is, you know, really close to being done. Um, but the unfortunate part of game design is that you need to know that the first 95% of game design is simple. It's that last 5% that is horrifically hard. So that's what development's all about, though, right? And anyone else like to add on, on the topic of knowing when a game's finished? It's well, never done. It's not until it goes to the publisher, and sometimes not even then. <laughs> I think for me, like, I had a, a playtest yesterday where someone else someone joined the game and a couple people were excited to tell them how to play it and they explained how to play it instead of me um, and they explained it well they actually got it so um, that made me feel like maybe there's not too much to change here actually you mentioned playtesters Pam I'm wondering this is probably something that each of you can answer because it's probably relatively short but conceptually speaking how do you guys choose your playtesters what are you guys looking for out of your playtesters when you're designing your games? Uh, I'd say it's, it's more important to know what to take out of what they say than it is to choose the people specifically, but... Um, do you repeat what, with playtesters if you have a good experience with them? Do you like to bring the same people on for your games, or is it better to change because then they're maybe they sort of feel inclined to keep telling you, yes, this is good, yes, this, is it good to change it up after? You need both. Yeah. Yeah. You need a broad base of, of testers with varying demographics and levels of experience, both with games and with your game. Mm -hmm. um, to, that's your wide test. Um, and then you, need, you absolutely need uh, depth, of, uh, of depth. So you need a few groups that will play it over and over and over again um, right. uh, for the, the, the back end, which Sam's talking about, the development part, just for data mining and uh, stress testing the game over many plays. I'm going to direct this question again back to Sen, because I know he has some experience with this. Uh, I don't know if Eric wants to add anything to this one. No. Um, you can. Uh, but how do you make games for licenses and intellectual properties? Oh, um, actually, I'm going to call, bring this one back to one of Eric's old design partners, Kevin Wilson, 
Kevin Wilson uh, once told me, he said, you can't let the IP be, um, you know, a stop sign. It has to be a guide, like a, a road sign to point you in the right direction. So uh, working with um, intellectual property <clears throat> is fun. And, you know, creating in the worlds that you grew up, you know, loving, like Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, different movies like The Godfather. I mean, Eric and I have a game each in the Godfather world. Um, and that's, you know, that's really interesting to see what different people do. It's almost like DJs remixing um, a song. And the only thing you have to really know about working with an IP is, um, you know, don't get so caught up in making the game exactly like the experience that the movie provided or the comic book was, because chances are you're never going to do that um, without having a lot of rules that actually don't make a lot of sense in the end of it. Um, so edge case rules or, or rules that are just there for a thematic purpose. Um, mire the game functionality, uh, load it down with a lot of stuff that doesn't make it a game that people actually want to play. So you have to pay enough you know, fan service to the people who are really big fans of the genre or the, the actual IP. Uh, but in the end, uh, you know, making a good game is more important than being true to an, an exact replica of an intellectual property. Uh, I mean, that's my take on it anyways. Eric, what do you think? I'm, well, I've, so I've done it often enough that I've actually got it down to a thing, I guess. Um, like the, I generally I design for moments rather than uh, simulation. That's the best encapsulation I can come for. So with every new IP, it's, it has to be something I love to start with, but... Uh, or at least can learn to love, um, and I look for by by either usually by osmosis by going back and consuming the media or talking to a bunch of people or spending time with them. I look for moments in that field of experience that I just want to capture and make sure they exist in the game, um, and that's usually my starting point. And as long as the game can deliver on those, rather than I don't worry about a, a narrative that mirrors the thing. I don't worry about. <coughs> Translation. I just want moments, and if I can capture the more of them, I can capture that are iconic enough and broad enough to appeal to most of the, the people who are into that. The more happy I am with the game. That's, I would, yeah. I would assume too the design space is a little bit larger too, where you're not cornering yourself into mirroring everything that happened in a movie or a book. Uh, the, I hate large design space. I like little design space. Oh, okay. I, like, I, like, I like, I like, like. Yeah, cause that's why I'm not a game designer. Well, that's well, that's. I'm only one, right? There's a million yeah. others, but I yeah. like, I like restrictions. So, yeah. like the, 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 um, though usually the moments, will, the moments I'm looking for will usually guide me towards something. Um, if I, if, if I've got a blank page after that, I'm probably doing something wrong. That's my thought. That's my take on it. Anyway. What's it like for you guys when you reached a moment, you think you're moving along and progress is being made, and then all of a sudden you've hit this wall where you almost have to back up in your design because you've, you've brought a layer into it that has caused this crunch where you've got to back up and you've got to... Is it, is it a test of inner strength to have to go back? And what's, what's that like to have to take a step back and have the, take that responsibility to say, this isn't right and I need to fix this? Well, I know for my game, uh, I have a party game called Just Face It, and um, it's one that's actually getting published right now. I submitted it for a contest, and it didn't get in. So I kind of felt deflated a little bit, and I was like, oh, maybe there's nothing there. Maybe I should just scrap it. So I worked on a different game for a while. 
And I finally took, after taking that break, I came back to that game and I had fresh eyes, I had some rest. And so I felt a bit more energy to work on it. And so I actually did some research because it's all about facial expression. So I actually read some books about it and learned more about it. And so it was that um, putting in that extra effort after taking a break that gave it new life. And then it actually got it to a point where it's like, okay, this is actually something really good here. You do have to get stuck. <laughs> when I get stuck, um, yeah, putting the game away and then and looking at it later, working on something different does help. You had an interesting bit. expression on your face. Yeah, I was just that question. It was almost like you remembered a moment from one of your. Well, projects. yeah, I, I have. I've had games where I just you, you, you get frustrated because you, you know there's something there, but you you can't pull it out, and and no matter what you do, you can't you can't seem to fix it. So you got you, you have to put it away and try something else. It happens in so many forms of creativity, in songs or writing or whatever. It's interesting because I don't design solo almost ever, so I always have a second or third person to bounce ideas yeah, off of, and that's true. it flows quite nicely. We we do obviously, obviously, I mean, we get ideas that just kind of go nowhere. Um, but one of the the things that um, you're going to learn as you design is that, like Eric says, less is sometimes more, and you, you got to cut. You just got to cut the stuff and be willing to get rid of something that you might have thought was the most excellent idea, but in the end, it might not actually serve the game any purpose. Yeah, I that, find that's almost always the case. Oh, it is always it's the almost, case. And that's the, the hardest thing. The thing you have, that, have this mechanic that you started the game with that you think is fantastic, and then that's the part you have to cut. It's, it's depressing. <laughs> Nobody sees you for a couple of days. Yeah. Well, the thing is that, I mean, like, whenever we cut, it's not really a, you know, it's not, you know, burn the whole thing down, nuke it from orbit. It's, mm-hmm. hey, let's excise that part and, you know, keep it in cryogenic storage for later, and then we right. bring it up for another game, perhaps, right? Yeah. So it's not all a lost thing. And I direct this question to Pam, but um, I'm sure actually each of you probably have a few answers to this, but uh, what kind of resources would you recommend if that books, websites, events, people to talk to, just... Pretty broad, but tools that people could turn to after. Pro-TO. Yeah. Um, well, I would say, for me, like I said, I've been designing games for 10 years, but it's just recently that I've been wanting to actually get a game published. And it's now happening mainly because I've put myself out there and I've joined the community and I've really um, tried to um, like get to know people in the industry. So I would say definitely go on Twitter. Uh, get on Facebook, go to events. Um, I went to a prototype convention in Orlando and it was such a great experience. I got so much feedback. I was so excited. I came back to Toronto to Toronto and just assumed that there were multiple sort of events like that. Um, but there really weren't and that's kind of why I started Prototio. So I would definitely suggest going to Protospiels, Unbugs, Metatopia, the first exposure play, uh, play test hall at Gen Con, Definitely Prototeo, September 29th to October 1st. Uh, yeah, so just just getting out there, and especially as like Snakes and Lattes Desire Nights, they have like monthly meetups. 401 Games has monthly meetups. So it's been through, because I when I designed games for like the last, you know, the first eight years, it was just on my own completely, and then playtesting with just my friends and family. So it's after getting more exposed to people, especially other designers, my designs have improved exponentially. Okay. So yeah, I think definitely get out there, be, get uh, part of the, the community. Are you guys uh, 
open to many different kinds of game designs or at least in terms of trying to please the publisher versus wanting to just make the games you want. Like I had a really interesting conversation with uh, Freedom Freeze last year in Essen. And he's always been about just simply making the games he wants to make. Whereas I know I've, I've talked to also your partner Jay, uh, also at Essen, and, and he seems to be the kind, of, he wants to be the kind of designer that is more open to hearing about what publishers want and working with more than one publisher. How do you decide what's better for you as a designer? Eric? <laughs> I, I have a pretty new answer to that, but again, this is, this, it only suits my current position in the sure. industry, right? Like, I've gotten to the point now where I basically only make games I love, and that's it. Um, and I, everything else I just cut. And I've actually burned most of my, again, purged most of my other stuff because I don't love it anymore. And the, um, if you're looking to do this, I do feel like to a degree, if you, are gonna, if you want to do this for a living, um, a game that has no passion behind it probably won't succeed as long as our industry is as close-knit and uh, passion-driven <coughs> uh, um, as, as it is. So, um, if I mean, if you're right now, if, if you're early in your career path and, you're, and you've already quit your job and you, you need to make your next paycheck, do not follow that advice by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but if you're doing this as a hobby and, trying, and thinking about getting into games, I still say so you should just do what you love. That's I do that very purely now. I used to try I used to try to make games for anticipating a market or anticipating a publisher and it just doesn't work for me anymore. It works for us for some reason. Um, I think maybe because it is two of us um, that we can we just we like all sorts of games. So Jay and myself, uh, Jay is one of the guys that I design with heavily. He lives out in Vancouver. And we design as a challenge really to us uh, is, hey, what mechanic haven't we used yet? Or what type of game haven't we made yet? And we ended up um, just having a broad broad category, or broad categories of things. Dexterity games, party games, social deduction games, heavy euros, uh, you know, dice I never know games. what you're coming up with next. Because right, so and, and it's, it's an interesting non-brand, I guess, <laughs> that we have, that we just kind of design whatever we feel like designing. Um, and typically, it finds its way into a publisher's heart and into people's homes, so it's okay. Um, you know, in the end, they're all games that we want to play, that we loved making and love to play still. Um, so <clears throat> it is coming from a pa- place of passion. We just happen to like a really broad variety of games, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> okay. uh, this question, we'll start with Eric, but... Uh each of you might even have different answers. So, uh, what uh, convention would you say f- for people that want to pitch or uh, find ways to m- make meetings with publishers? Would you recommend you need to be at? Uh, assuming this is assuming your game is done. Yes, assuming you think that it's, it's ready. Right, because uh, you get one shot basically. Right, um, so. Um, I would probably recommend three conventions that I think are the best. Uh, that would be the, the Gamma Trade Show, uh, which is coming up next weekend. Um, it's, uh, it's a trade show only, only for retailers, distributors, and publishers. Uh, it's in Vegas, although I think it's going to Reno, Reno next, next year. So I'm not going anymore, but you should go. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a very concentrated. You'll have all the publishers there, um, but it's not so crowded. Everybody's um, a little bit more relaxed. Uh, and open to new business because it is a uh, is a business generating show. 
Um, the other two are Board Game Geek Con, which is in November uh, in Dallas, Fort Worth Airport. Um, for completely opposite reason, it's a consumer-facing show, but it's all it's all top-level gamers that are just there to have fun and play games. You'll have the best playtesting pool you'll ever uh, you'll ever find, and it's a good place to make um, to drive top uh, to drive bottom-up awareness of your game. So if you go there, you play games and get people to talk about it, and then have them ask publishers for the game. That's even more amazing than you pitching the game to yourself. The other one I'll recommend is Dice Tower Con, which is very similar to Board Game Geek Con. It's a 1,500, now 3,000-person convention in Orlando for the same reason, except that it, there they also have a lot of high, very high concentration of uh, YouTubers from people from our last panel. Uh, media and tastemakers are at that show. And you can, like, a lot of games uh, in the last two years have, um, the, their driving buzz has come from that show. Um, of course, Tom Basil, like, assume most of you guys know is at that show is one of the he loves your game you've automatically got a window into something mm-hmm. one want to add to that uh, I'd, I'd just say um, not everybody has the budget to fly to, mm-hmm. to Las Vegas uh, but you can drive to Gen Con uh, it's close enough to, to drive and or Origins are about the same distance really I think I'd recommend Origins over Origins, Gen Con. Yeah, because uh, from Gen what I hear, I haven't been to it, but... I Gen Con's great, but it's crowded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you can get meetings. Yeah, sure. so I mean, the thing you need to know about Gen Con is that it is, a, again, a public-facing show where it's sales-generated. So they, they people, the publishers are there wanting to sell product. And if you know anything about most of the publishers, they're, they're small. It's like one or three or four people at a booth running around with their heads cut off, like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to serve the public, demo and all that kind of stuff. And so to get a meeting means that you're taking away from their opportunity <coughs> to sell games. So A, they won't like you if you waste their time, that's one. Uh, but B, um, Gen Con is really heavily focused on serving the crowd. Origins is a smaller crowd, uh, pretty much, I think. Um, it's just a quieter place. Um, and so... You can get uh, you can get a meeting there a little bit easier. Um, although now Gen Con, I mean, they have rooms where you can go now if you're part of uh, Gamma. Anyway, um, other conferences to go to. Um, I haven't been to Metatopia yet, but that's one I really do want to go to in terms of a design thing. Um, looking at it from a pitching perspective, uh, I, I you know pitching live is absolutely the best thing to do. Um, but we're getting so many calls straight from the publishers right now that it's not really our focus. Is, our focus isn't necessarily pitching live to the publisher. We want to play the game with them live to say, this is what you asked us to make. That's, what, that's the position we're in right now. But uh, Metatopia, just to get uh, surrounded by designers, because it's all designers and all playtesters who want to playtest your games. Uh, and so that might be uh, one to go to get that kind of inspiration that Pam came home with from Orlando when she went. Uh, there's a bunch of conventions that are very <coughs> designer-specific. Um, so Unpub would be another one that's coming up next weekend. Unpub's actually good because a lot of more and more publishers are going there yeah. with the specific idea of looking for unpublished games. Yeah, and, and, and Metatopia as well. I mean, there are people who go... There are publishers who, who support that as well. Um, now that there are more and more publishers in the Americas uh, and Canada, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, there's more support at the North American conferences that are design-centered for people to meet up with publishers that are there. 
Yeah, the one that I went to, actually Tom Vassell was there and uh, uh, Zev uh, from Z-Man Games and a few other publishers as well. Um, it was called Prototype Con, now it's called Expedition Prototype. Um, yeah, but I would definitely... It just happened. It just yeah. happened in uh, February. Um, a couple board game bars actually ran it. Um, but yeah, I would I would suggest that too because you because Tom Vassell actually was standing there watching my playtest. It was really cool, um, and I know I heard a few people talk to you know people about like getting actually the publisher gave me their card, so like I think it's like, those kind of smaller things where you know publishers will be are pretty pretty good. And there's a, the proto the protospiel series of events which happens pretty much almost anywhere. Uh, if you uh, get together, get on their Facebook page. You'll get notified of where the next one is. They're usually like in. There's one in Ann Arbor in the summer, Madison, Wisconsin, um, all sorts uh, in California. There's a few in California, so you can look up where those are as well. So Protospiel. Awesome. I'm going to surprise Daryl a little bit. I'm going to rope him in on this last question, and I'm going to include Sen because we just had a really interesting conversation on your maple syrup show about evergreen games <laughs> and how hard they are to come by now. We don't see them very often. You know, Games might sell great for a year and then they just stop. I'd like to know, I'm not a game designer, I, I know on that I never will be, but I'm really fascinated to know about how you guys decide you know, or how you evaluate when it's time to try and transition into a full-time role, how to make this your thing. Where, where do, do any of you sit on that right now, and, and what is it that you're thinking about in terms of your strategy to, if if it is that desire, you've done it partly now, I think. You've, um, yeah, you're doing it. What's the transition been like for you, and, and at what point do you know it's the right time to make that move? Uh, it's never the right time. I do want money. Uh, <laughs> I would I'd say for myself, uh, what was a big step was I had very... Uh, uh, supportive wife that made it possible and uh, I found different types of work so um, versatility and building those relationships with different publishers and then finding opportunities that you can add value so anything from if you can get jobs doing editing work or if you can get jobs doing development work or working at booths or different things like that a lot of that might start volunteer wise but then long term you can find and kind of patch together opportunities to uh, do some of the work. I would personally not recommend to jump into it full time until you've established um, kind of a, a catalog of games. Um, and uh, at, you know, the the term that I learned from Sen was it's kind of it, it becomes maybe your jobby, a little mix of your hobby and job. You know, add a add a little income, or, but it's not really about that, right? Like instead, focus on what you love doing, and then if that can morph into maybe more of your work, or you can transition, you know, take one day off. I know, for instance, uh, Sen's design partner, Jay, that he mentioned, uh, for instance, he took a day off of, from his job so he could designate more time towards uh, game design. So those are different ways that maybe you can transition and find ways to, to make it. And I don't know if Sen wants to add. Oh, it, well, for me, personally, it's only going to happen when it actually exceeds the income that I make as a professor, which is not likely ever, right? So, um, Same here. It'll, it probably will never happen for so, me. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it's tough, but uh, Eric's been doing it for the longest Too time. Too long. Yep. Yeah, right? I mean, I, so I, I don't know if I have anything to do with it, but I mean, there was, um, I've been 
Uh, I've been writing game design on my tax return since 96. So it, I, I can't remember a time when I wasn't doing this for a living. So I don't, I don't think I remember like what the transition point. I just, I knew since I played, since I played D and D, and since I played Magic: the Gathering, that this is what I want to do for a living, and there just, there was no other option. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for um, so Matt Leacock, you guys know Pandemic. Uh, Matt didn't easily go into the. <laughs> he did not make. Yeah, the he switch. came from software, right? So yeah. he's making six figures. Yeah. So he he used to work as a UX designer. Um, and he did not make the switch until he kind of got the call that Pandemic was in Walmart and Target and that kind of thing, right? So it is that, what you're saying, that everyday <coughs> level yeah. of sales, which, I mean, we may see some more. It, it just depends on what's, what's going to catch the flavor. Even as a publisher, like somebody like Stephen Bonacore finally, after all these years, yeah. just finally came out of working in IT on Wall Street. Good paying job. <laughs> And look how long he, he waited to decide that this okay, this is the time that I can actually sustain a, a career in this. All right, we do want to now spend some time with, I'm sure you have some questions in about 15, 20 minutes. So if you have a question, my, my request again, a reminder, I'm sorry, Kickstarter is another panel. Uh, it's just not here. And, and to be specific. So ask your question to someone and try to to make that question like have a specific answer, not too broad, not too big. Uh, anyone? Awesome, thank you. Go ahead. Um, so when you're designing games, uh, how do you, uh, do you think uh, the term like king making is a problem or if it's necessary in games or, and how do you kind of work around <coughs> it? Or what are your strategies for working around it? Who wants to? Or take on Sorry. the king making problem. So I mean, so the, I mean, king making. So just to be clear, so we're all on the same page, right? The king making problem in a game is when the this only applies to competitive games. When the winner of the game is determined not by their own play, but by the actions of another player. So I cannot win the game, but my with my next action, I can determine whether player B or whether C is going to win the game. So I get to choose, and that's an unsatisfying ending for most players. Um, there's a game called Kingmaker um, that that is about that. Um, so, um, so there. I mean, you don't always. So my my um, my thought on a lot of these game design problems, especially uh, as we're getting to a point where everybody kind of knows the fundamentals of game design, is step one: figure out if you want to solve the problem. It's, I don't consider every game design problem something that has to be solved. Do you want to solve a kingmaker problem? Or does kingmaking actually, is it part of your game? A lot of party games work like that. The games with, um, the, that are part of... I mean, the judging games. Yeah, absolutely. Like, those games are, um, that are on, um, valued on social norms rather than <coughs> mechanical uh, um, astuteness. Then of course, who cares, right? That's, that you want that. Um, well, how do you solve kingmaking? I mean, so uh, the the... The broad answer, which doesn't take a whole panel, is just um, there's a spectrum of um, allowed player interaction, how much the players can interfere with the uh, with the success of others, and um, uh, and kingmaking. So the more you allow players to interact with each other, the more you open up the game to allow somebody to take success from somebody else. The only way to solve kingmaking 100% is to limit player interaction to zero. So you have to decide where on the spectrum you're going to allow interaction to, uh, how much players are going to be allowed to affect each other, and then decide at some point 
how much kingmaking am I going to allow in the game, and to what degree, what's what use cases are acceptable and what are not, and that's that's up to you as a designer. You have to make that call. You can also uh, use hidden information to to get rid to mitigate it. So you, if somebody is, uh, uh, if you think in, in the game some, somebody is going to be able to, to to choose who gets what, just make it so that people can't see what they're getting or what the other people have, and they don't know for sure. <laughs> so. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, this is. Or just ask a question. Daryl. So in, in designing a game, it, the, the parts that are like, you know, how much is this card worth or how many action points, like doing all the sort of the nitty-gritty mathematical things, like what's the way to sort of go through it and figure out, okay, I should make this this many points or whatever. That, I'm not sure if I'm asking the question. Oh, no, 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 this, this is a great question. question. It's a wonderful question. Oh, Maybe yeah, send a It's funny. Answer as send and then answer as Jesse or, or something. Oh, <laughs> so um, as Sen, uh, Sen would build a spreadsheet and then mathematically figure out all the balance points because Sen likes to have a balance point uh, where I know that everything that I could do mathematically has been done. Um, we, I call it valuation. So evaluating a card, evaluating it by action points or cost or whatever, and making sure that everything has some mathematical basis to determination of that is what it is. Jesse, who's sitting at the back, would actually say, hey, let's just put something on it and then nudge it. And really what happens with me is that I start with a mathematical basis and then I nudge from there and swing by feel. Uh, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Put it on the table, get it out of your head, off the spreadsheet, into a card, let people play with it, and people will come back and say, this is OP, that's overpowered, or man, that was cheap, and I, I, I could buy 17 of them, why didn't, how come this is so expensive? And you'll find through playing that you can answer most of those mathematical questions. Um, and then, so the backwards way, Jesse, well, not backwards, but the other way, <laughs> the Jesse method ends up being that we start nudging things around, and they sometimes usually end up coming towards some, like, uh, like you could probably do some statistical analysis on it and find, like, the mean, median, mode, and it would actually come up to a nice curve in the end. But it doesn't start that way. Like, <laughs> the other day, we were designing a game, and I said, okay, what's the card set distribution? He said, you know, I'd take out the seven. And I said, why? Because it was like, you know, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And he said, I'd just take out the seven. I said, okay, why? Yeah, just because. Just for feels. <laughs> right? It's like, for me, from a mathematical basis, that makes absolutely no sense. But for Jesse, he's like, asymmetrically, I just want that to be out. I don't know why the seven, but the seven. And so we just end up playtesting it. And we, sometimes we'll put the seven back in. And sometimes it's like, hey... Let's also take up the three because it made sense, right? <laughs> so a lot of times the litmus test is really getting it on the table, putting it in front of other people and seeing what they say. Uh, I, I usually talk about game design in terms of emergence uh, and iteration. So game design is an iterative process and game design is an emergent process. And so the games, typically, you have an idea of what you want it to be, but what comes out of that isn't... Well, sometimes if it's a really quick game, maybe. But a lot of times, the bigger games end up not being exactly what you pictured in your head at the beginning because you put it through the process. You've iterated it so many times, and what emerges from the design process isn't what you intended. It's what everybody who's played the game has kind of fed into that. Uh, and then the feedback process and vetting of feedback is a whole different story. But 
That's and, kind of a rebel. And I'd, I'd like to say um, that sometimes you'll create something to put in numbers just randomly just to try and get the thing to work. Then once you get to work, <coughs> then you can go to the spreadsheet and, and try and balance things out. That's kind of where, where I do things. I, I don't think a game of mine has touched a spreadsheet <laughs> in, in the first iteration ever. Um, it depends on the game. I, I, I agree. Like so, I mean, that's true. I've never designed an abstract game or a, or a perfect information, uh, very very simple game, which is, you probably could do. But I guess the the when you start designing a game for me, when I start designing a game, the only thing I care about is is this game delivering what it's supposed to deliver. And, um, I've done it often enough. I've worked like Senachi quite a bit. Like I do a lot of work with spreadsheets, and I do, um, and I uh, I'm pretty good at math, but. The, I use that only. I, I basically internalize all that and use it to make gut calls, uh, and I just trust my gut 100. percent I'm like, I feel like it's got to be this, 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 is this, and that's going to. But the reason I use the numbers is to achieve a particular behavior in play, not for no other reason. Then, after the game is uh, after the game has gone through a number of iterations and done what it's supposed to do, it has to be reasonably balanced. Like I don't throw numbers out randomly. Sorry, Jesse, but like, like he did, he doesn't either. He actually has a math. He, just, he threw him, he threw him directly under the bus. Um, I'll, I'll never, I mean, I do everything deliberately to start with, but as it is an educated guess, and this is where I think it's got to uh, where it's got to go. And then the first few plays, all I care about is is this game delivering what uh, emotionally. Of what it's supposed to be. Then after it is, I'm like, okay, it's fun. Now I got to put the spreadsheet on, and the spreadsheet's gonna tell me where everything is bullshit. <coughs> Perfect. Another question, please. Um, so I think in general, like I don't know if this is your process, and I will make a process question. But it's kind of like you have the idea on paper, and then you do it solo. Where you make some components, and you get some people, and you kind of blind play test. What is the attrition rate of games that you make or design at each step of the process? Ninety-nine point nine 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 percent. And how do Don't you make it past the paper? Yeah. <laughs> kind of get get better at that, I suppose. Like because you're going to get a whole bunch of games, and they're not going to make the next. And then all of a sudden, you just get this funnel where you have a whole bunch of games at the start, and then kind of less games at the end. So what is your? You don't get better because your critical faculties get better. So you're. Not, at least for me, I still throw away ninety-nine percent of everything. Like most things, I don't survive the shower to paper um, and I just get better at evaluating it so it's that funnel is still always the same shape sometimes I'll write something down and I'll, I'll stick it in my pocket and I'll find, find it in my coat from the year before and I'll open it up and go what was I thinking <laughs> get rid of it I mean we, we electronically track all our information so I on the forum that I have I'll, because again I communicate with a guy who's three hours behind in 3,000 kilometers away so I'll put an idea up, and by the end of the day, it's like, if Jay had responded to it, then maybe there's something there. If he hasn't responded to it, I read it again and say, oh, well, that was dumb, and keep on going from there. But it's really just, a lot of it is is literally throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what sticks. And as you get better and better and better, you recognize what won't stick before you even start making stuff. And I think that's probably the part of the process that uh, a lot of people get uh, really invested in is the making of the stuff um, and if you do all that making of stuff like the board and the cards and the art and all that kind of thing and you end up with something that doesn't go anywhere that's when it can get really deflating and so that's where you have to get better at valuation of the product of the idea um, and so really um, so I follow the process uh, so it's mo- uh, like uh, the most viable prototype right like the minimal viable prototype MVP so you're making, if you can make your game in like, we do it in 24 cards. If it can survive a 24 card litmus test, stress test, 
then we'll go forward. If it doesn't, it's like, well, I guess that wasn't a good idea. But for me to make 24 cards takes me 10 minutes, right? Wow. We made, a, we made, a, we made a, a card game this morning in 15 minutes, and we played it. Well, I didn't get to play it, but Jesse was playing it. And he said, yeah, there's something there. It's not a game yet, but there's something about it that's worthwhile to Wait. invest your time in, right? And was it worthwhile maybe yeah, saying, hey, interesting, yeah. yeah, there's something interesting in there, right? But if there was nothing there, all we invested was 15 minutes of time and maybe a half an hour of talking about it on the drive up. And so if you can get to a level where you can start quickly, rapidly prototyping your games, you won't invest you know, the seven weeks of thinking and the art and the design of the cards and all that kind of stuff and come up with a product that in the end goes nowhere, right? So that's, I think, the valuation, a lot of the stuff, you know, when you're as experienced as Eric, you can do it in your head. And then if you're not, do it fast. <coughs> Fail as fast as you can so that you can recognize where the errors are. And if it's failing so hard that you shouldn't keep going with it, you'll know, Right? But if you never put it on the table and it's all in your head or on a spreadsheet, you never quite get that feeling of, oh, I don't know if it's good or not, because you don't know. Or, so, ba or backtrack and find something you liked in it and put it in something else. Yeah. There's an important corollary to what Sen said, actually, um, which is, uh, so this is the... This is the bummer part of the seminar, but it's most. Um, I, I find that most people who come to pitch a game, right? It's all, I would say nine times out of ten. I think you'd say the same. It's you can almost tell immediately by looking at it. This is a game somebody's been working on for three or four years. Um, they put they poured their heart and soul into it, and they've they've lived with it usually in isolation or with their own group for three or four years. Most of the time, most of the time, that first game is not good enough to publish, most of the time, uh, with very, very, very few exceptions. Um, the problem is that the, the, the thing I would try to uh, inoculate you into is not to think of that as a failure. Like, the three or four years you put in dollars is not wasted. Um, I still would strongly, like, still take it out, still get it play tested, but when people tell you it's, maybe you shouldn't publish it, or try to, uh, or, or you end up going down a bunch of uh, uh, really weird paths, Instead of wasting a ton of time trying to make that thing better, use your learnings from that game to do the next thing. Because your next thing's going to be way better than the thing you've got uh, been working on for the last few years. You'll probably get excited about it again. You'll be refreshed about um, through the creative process. And you may eventually come back to that other thing. But I, I think if you're uh, creatively motivated and um, you've, most people have more than one idea, You'll probably that, that the success of your next game will propel you to another cool idea that you've had, another one. You'll get better and better and better, and I'll, I think you'll find most often you're not going to come back to that original thing. Um, that's so. The, the 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 takeaway is your first game probably shouldn't be published. My first game was garbage, and I would never show it to anybody. Oh, so is ours. Um, it is garbage. I, it is absolute garbage, and I'm glad it never got published. Um, I'm and I put, to look at mine. I put a year, I put years into it. It probably should be published. Don't, um, it, don't let it define you. Don't let it, uh, and don't let it get you down too much. Just do the next thing, and I promise you, it'll be better. That was an it's get it gets better PSA. It's wasn't better. It? Yeah. Yeah. It's better. I saw the star. Alright, so before before you know actually, so I'm sorry we're running out of time, but the beautiful thing is this is the last seminar, so you might be able to catch these people as we walk out, and I'm just gonna have them do one last thing. 
but feel free to flag them down and not talk to them. Not a dance. And do, we're not dancing. Well, so I'm going to start with Pam, and we're going to go across the panel. Well, in one minute, piece of advice. Mm-hmm. We'll go across. Eric kind of did it, but he can also do another one. Yeah. Uh, but just one piece of advice that you would give uh, designers to break into the industry. So one of the biggest things I would say is to let your idea take shape through testing. Um, you're not going to think of the complete game in your head right away. And to be open to that testing. <coughs> follow the feedback that you're getting. Follow the research that you do. And don't be stuck on your original idea. Like, be open to it. I kind of think about it as like writing a paper. You start with your hypothesis, and then you do research. And then your hypothesis might change. So follow the research, follow the feedback, and be open to it. Because a lot of designers, they're so set on, this is my game, and you give them feedback, and you can tell that they're not listening. They don't take it in. So I think that's one of the biggest things, to be open to feedback. And if you get hear something a few times, you know you, you got to listen to that. Seven. Uh, one piece of advice. Listen to the Meeple Syrup Show. No, seriously. Um, uh, not necessarily just the Meeple Syrup Show, although it is pretty cool because Daryl and I are on it. Um, but uh, do, do listen to podcasts. Do listen to um, a read websites. Educate yourself on games by playing them. Uh, lots of different variety of games. Um, all those things help you kind of build a toolkit that you can reach back in and say, oh yeah, I remember that from this game. I remember hearing that from, you know, Grant Rodiak's blog or from Jeff Engelstein and Mike Fitzgerald's Ludology. Uh, You'll find that there's so much information out there that it's readily available, it's free. It's people who want to help you be better game designers. Find them, get to know them, get in contact with them on Facebook, on Twitter. The world is such a small place now, it's such a small industry that, you know, we're all really reachable. Uh, and if you have questions, you know, we're always open. I mean, at least Daryl and I are to fielding questions from you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, not going to talk to you. I'll talk to Daryl, but I won't talk for the rest of them. But yeah, um, find us on Facebook, on uh, Twitter, whatever, and ask questions. I, that's the way you learn, right? So we're willing Tim? to help. Yeah, um, yeah, you got to learn as many games as you can, and that doesn't necessarily mean playing them, although playing them is the best thing to do, but like like Sen was saying, there are hundreds of podcasts out there that will show you how a game works and what's out there, and, and it'll also tell you what the hot games are, what the things that, that are really pushing the, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the new the scene, like what, what's, what's new, what's, what's interesting... And so that when you do get out to, to play games, you, you know what to look for. All right, last one. Uh, all right, so uh, break the rules. Uh, I'm going to do that by taking more than one minute. <laughs> um, the, um, I just want to, uh, this is a bit of a standard one, but I've only been, I haven't given it too often. The, um, you, there's a lot of technical hurdles that you've got to get through, which I covered very, very well. Um, the thing that I found is if, if you, if, a career in this interests you, um, the first thing you've got to do, in my opinion, is um, come to a very, very core understanding of what your motivation is to come into, uh, to get into this. Um, I've uh, conveniently categorized it into three separate areas for you guys, and it can, it can go beyond that if you need to, but um, the three general reasons that people want to get into this industry, right, um, I'm 
I'm calling it, you want to be an artist, a businessman, or a rock star. Businessman, um, that's new. Right? Changed. No, it's no. Changed. It used to be entertainer. Entertainer. Business person. No, well, <laughs> <laughs> Just keep going, sorry. <laughs> I'm cutting all of you. Um, so, uh, all right, so... The, the, and nobody is one of these three things. They are three. There are three psychographs that everybody blah 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 blah. So, but if you understand what your core motivation is, you'll have a better chance. So, if you're an artist, you are you're somebody who has a creative person. You want to express something. You want your your either you want people to ex enjoy your game. Entertainment falls under that. Um, hop. Uh, where uh, you want you want to share. You've got this thing that you want to share in any way possible. That's and it matters. The purity of your vision is the most important thing to you. Um, if that's your core motivation, then you uh, be uh, be strongly cognizant of the idea that you probably want to be your own publisher, probably, or you want to partner up with somebody with good business experience because the compromises you don't want to make are in your own vision and you don't want to end up doing stuff, you don't want to end up putting yourself on a deadline treadmill where you have to uh, make compromises to your game in order to get paid that week or to make uh, meet some kind of arbitrary metric. Um, if you want to be a businessman, the businessman the, is the your goal is to run a successful business. There are a lot of people who want to run a publisher. You don't necessarily need to be rich, but you want to run a real. You want to make games, maybe not even yours. You want to publish games. You want to get games out there, and you want to be um, responsible from end to end to so the sales, the marketing, the branding, how it looks. Um, that if that's what you want to do. Uh, obviously concentrate on game design, but also go out and learn a whole bunch of other skills that you need to survive in the industry. That um, None of the resources that we've talked about are unfortunately there, but I mean, it's all business. It's all basic business. Go to business school, become good at that before you get... Uh, uh, anyway, the, and Rockstar is the, the, the... I just call it that, but it really is is you self-identify, you want to be one of those guys, as Jerry Seinfeld put it, as, uh, to be uh, one of the big comedian. Uh, that was me. I wanted to be one of those guys. I, I am a game designer. I want that to be my identity. I want that to be how people know me and uh, interact with me. Uh, in that case, you um, everything is about your craft and about how you uh, manage your own time and your uh, and your lifestyle. So it becomes game design becomes more of a discipline to you then as it does a uh, as it does a craft. You still have to be good at the technical aspect of it. You still have to be good at um, uh, technically running the businesses up, but you need to be working on yourself more than anything else. You have to develop a discipline and a point of view to view everything through the lens of play. Everything to, everything's got to be a game design to you. Everything. It like, doesn't matter what you do, because um, you don't want to be inspired only by games. You want to go take a walk on the beach. You want to see something random, and that turns into a game for you. That, um, that's how you become that person. Um, and you have, to, uh, you have to work on social media skills. You have to work on social skills. You have to work on your own social anxieties. Um, you have to get that is a big that's a big part of it get in touch get in tune with what that um, with why you want to do it and you will be way less disappointed over the first few rocky years of becoming a designer because you'll at least you'll know what you want out of it and you will make fewer catastrophically bad decisions I like starting your own game company thank you to our panel <laughs> I just need everyone to go up. I'll tell you help. The most helpful thing is oh. get out of the room. Get out. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank everybody for coming. I hope you have the rest of the beautiful con. Beautiful. Um,
Get to work.